You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Giants Splash. I'm Henry Schulman, the Giants beat reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. And today I talked to Charlie Steiner, the radio voice of the Dodgers and one of the original anchors of ESPN Sports Center. Charlie talks about his early days at ESPN, his famous Follow Me to Freedom ad, how he almost became a Giants broadcaster, and much, much more. We'll get to it right after this. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire. By famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. Henry Schulman back here at uh, Oracle Park, and I'm talking to Charlie Steiner, who I've known for a long time, and I, I did some research with some of my secret, you know, I, I have some secret sources, and uh, I found out through that secret source called Wikipedia that, <laughs> Charlie Steiner, you're turning 70 years old this year. I can't believe that. Uh, sadly, I can. Um, it's weird. I don't feel it. Um, it, it just looks really crappy in print. Outside of that, it's it's fine. I, I keep being reminded that I've been around for a long time now, but I'm, I've been really fortunate to have lived when I've lived and essentially how I've lived. So I got no kicks. Well, when you think back to how long ago it was that you started at Sports Center, started doing Sports Center, and you really start doing the math, it was a long time ago, wasn't it? I got to ESPN in 88. It had not really taken off as yet. It was the sports station on cable. Um, it went on the air in 79, so now that's going on 40 years. They're having a big celebration in September. Um, and at that point, Sports Center happened to be the news show on the sports station on cable in a little town of Bristol, Connecticut. And I was offered a job to go up there, and that was a weird story, getting there in and of itself. And I'd never had done television before, and uh, I was one of about a half a dozen people they brought in very quickly. And then within about a year, year and a half, uh, that's when the talent surge really took off. Uh, they brought in Keith and Dan and Robin. They were so big and so good, no last names required. Um, Gary Miller came in, Tarico came in. So within the space of about 18 months, uh, the sports center thing was kind of teetering, and then then all of us kind of showed up, and then it took off, and we were the last ones to realize it was becoming a big deal. 
I mean, it was. I mean, it got to the point where you had to watch Sports Center. I mean, I was on the road, and I I went into hotels sometimes where they didn't quite have ESPN yet, and I would check out to go to a hotel. I mean, you you really became a, Charlie Steiner became a household name, which is yeah, and not necessarily in the Steiner house, but that was okay too. <laughs> yeah, again, when I started at ESPN and be on the road, and you drive into these college towns or wherever it was, and they had the motels and. and they had the billboard out front. We have HBO and we have ESPN. I'm thinking, ooh, hey, maybe this is going to be a big deal. Um, again, we had we had no idea, and, and I, as I said, I'd never done television before, and so they just kind of thrust me in front of a camera and said, uh, <laughs> it was like in the deep end of the pool. Now swim, kid. And uh, so I had to learn how to do TV really on the fly. Uh, but again, part of the thing beginning with the first question now I'm pushing 70 I was almost 40 when uh, when I got to ESPN and I was I was the new kid and I was old, the oldest guy at the same time um, but you know it, it certainly worked out far better than I expected when when they came to me my agent said, are you really sure you want to go to Bristol, Connecticut and work on a cable station? And again, at that point, I'm pushing 40. I'd done very well in radio. Uh, I said, well, why not? If it doesn't work out, I'll go back to radio. And I remember that when I remember when Olbermann started uh, the first night on ESPN2 when the Deuce came out. I remember his opening line was, "Welcome to the end of my career." I mean, did you did you feel a little bit like that back then when the when the first ESPN started? No, I no. Um, Keith at that point was a far bigger television presence than I was. Um, I just wanted to I wanted to see where my career was going to go. I had a wonderful, fortuitous run to that point. And, you know, I'd done well in New York. did the Jets. I did the Generals. And there was a certain future president who owned that team. Um, and I had a really good run. And so here was this opportunity out of the blue to give a shot at television. If it didn't work, I'd pack up and leave. And 14 years there, it worked out pretty well. Yeah, you know, uh, the New Jersey Generals, uh, USFL, um, and Donald Trump, uh, he wasn't one of the original investors in the Generals, but he did end up buying it. And, uh, you know, I don't want to get too political because, uh, you know, they've called me in and we've had quote-unquote meetings about my comments on, uh, on politics. But, I mean, what was it like working for him? Did you interact with him a lot? I knew him before he owned the team. And I was there the very first year when an oil man from Oklahoma named Jay Walter Duncan bought the team and brought in Herschel Walker. And Jay Walter Duncan, God love him, may have been the only guy who ever made money out of the USFL. He sold the team to uh, Trump in the second year. Trump is a couple of years older than I am, so I knew him tangentially around the city. And um, he was a schmuck then, not much has changed. But having said that, he... uh, he was he was a firecracker when he arrived you know he gave the league some attention and then uh within two years he killed the league uh so i just living through all of that was really tough i knew donald again before he was uh 
I knew Donald when he was the, the headline in the New York Post used to call him the boy builder. And so I, I knew him when he was a Donald long before he was the Donald. And um, I had no idea <laughs> where his career was going, much less mine. Um, but looking back on it, you know, it was another Gumpian experience for me along the way. Gumpian experience, yes. Uh, that was a, that was a good movie. By the way, a friend of mine, Jeff Perlman, uh, who's a, a freelance writer, has written a book about the USFL, and it was it's called Football for a Buck. Mm-hmm. You ought to pick it up if you if you can see it. Um, and uh, you know, just uh, going back to Sports Center, uh, Olbermann's a bit of a loon, isn't he? <laughs> I mean that in a nice way. We're friends. You know, look. I gave Keith the second job of his broadcasting career when he was 21 years old. I knew he was always a great talent. Um, he um, He's unique. He's, he's as smart a guy as I've ever been around. Um, he has his idiosyncrasies. Um, so I've known him since 1980, 81, so do the math. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I have nothing but admiration for his talent and his skill. Um, I just wish he could hold a job <laughs> longer than he generally has, but I always remind him, Keith, you have more made more money being fired than you have being hired. That is a gift. That That is a gift. I actually liked um, the commentaries he used to do when he had his own political show were, were just amazing. And you know, what, was, it, what was interesting about that, again, I, I knew him when he was 21 years old, and I was much more politically oriented and active at that point than I thought he was. I, I had no idea he had political interest in, in you know, the early 80s when we first crossed paths. Uh, but he's brilliant. There, there's no question he's brilliant. And I wish uh, he was on television doing that more than he's doing now. I guess he's doing some stuff with Sports Center again. But he's he's a gifted broadcaster. And uh, also, all of you became gifted actors because ESPN ended up uh, building its marketing campaign uh, around some of the athletes who purportedly work inside the building and then all of you guys. And uh, I, I know that if anyone here is probably 26 years old or younger, they probably have no idea what Y2K was. And it really was nuts in 1999. There was just this huge fear that uh, the computers would not figure out how to handle the move into the next century and that the, the all the computers were going to explode, all the uh, infrastructure of the country was going to blow up, we would be back in the dark ages, and ESPN came up with a hilarious commercial, and uh, it probably wasn't entitled Follow Me to Freedom, but everybody remembers it as the Follow Me to Freedom ad, and you were probably known for that as much as anything. Sadly, you're right, Hank. Um, what was fascinating, not only about that spot, but the whole campaign, when I first got there in 88, they did everything they could to diminish the personality of the people on the air. Uh, we had a, a president who said in a perfect world, we would have monkeys and clowns do the uh, do the on-air work and just have the ESPN logo behind you. And then one night in a drunken rage, uh, a certain president, uh, we'd all had a, a few, and he said, you know, in a perfect world, I'd have monkeys and doing all this. And then he looks that particular night, it was me, 
Chris Berman and the late John Saunders, and he said, but you, you, and you messed up the plan. <laughs> so, fast forward about a year later, again, never uh, attempting to thrust the personality of the folks on the air. One day, there, we're called into a meeting, and uh, folks from Wyden and Kennedy, advertising agency from, from Portland that's done the Nike spots all these years, and chicks dig the long ball, all that stuff. They came in, and they said, we have this idea. We're going to do a sports center. This is sports center campaign. And they were enormously successful. They're still running them to some degree these days with uh, the current crop of folks on the air. Um, and at the millennium, thankfully, the computers didn't go haywire. And this spot, Follow Me to Freedom, is now 20 years old. Uh, Time Magazine did, you know, they, everybody did the the top this, top that for the, the, the decade, the millennium. And in advertising, the This Is Sports Center campaign was ranked number six or seven all time. Um, and it was like, whoa, us? And uh, they gave me a lot of good punchlines. I was really lucky about that because, you know, I was just a dumpy little bearded guy who read sports news, but they gave me this this weird stuff that uh, seemed to work out okay. Uh, yeah, follow me to freedom. You can find it on, on YouTube. It's it's really funny. Uh, it, actually, all the commercials are. You know, we, we've talked for all this time. We haven't really talked about your second life as a uh, Major League Baseball radio announcer, and you went to the Yankees, first of all, uh, and then uh, ended up in Los Angeles. Uh, not briefly, how did all that happen? Well, when I was seven years old, growing up in New York, I was a Brooklyn Dodger fan because every kid in my neighborhood on Long Island loved the Brooklyn Dodgers. First game I ever went to was Ebbets Field. First time I turned a baseball game on the radio in my mom's kitchen, listening on a Zenith radio, which seemingly was half the size of the kitchen. I heard this voice, and I heard the crowd, and I heard the crack of the bat, and I'm thinking, wow, this is really cool. And I just pressed my ear against the radio. Um, and one day, my mom said, well, you know, that's what he does for a living. I said, well, who's he? He's Vin Scully. Oh, okay. And so from the time I was seven years old, all I ever wanted to be was the Dodger announcer. When I was eight, they moved, which would put a, a hurdle into the path. So that's all I ever wanted to be as a kid. Um, and again, now I'm in this business since I was 18, so 52 years. Um, I just wanted to be the Dodger announcer. I didn't want to replace Vin Scully. I wouldn't, didn't want to be the next Vin. I just wanted to announce for the Dodgers. And on this, you know, again, gumpy and trip that I've enjoyed, um, you know, 15 years later, I'm doing it. And, you know, again, my path here started really through ESPN. They got the baseball contract around 91, 92. I started doing the very early editions of Baseball Tonight. And then I started doing some Wednesday games on television, what they call the B games, not the big network games, the ones that were played into a market where was, the main game was blacked out. And then they uh, signed uh, the uh, Sunday night baseball contract for radio. They gave me that. 
Um, and I, after 14 years at ESPN, um, had uh, actually it was at the end of the 2001 season, and I had two offers. Uh, one to go to the Yankees, which I took, and the other was to come to the Giants. And uh, my dad was in ill health, and this is, you know, again after 9-11, and, uh, and he was in ill health, and I thought, well, gee, it'd be kind of neat if he could listen to me, you know, in his last few years, which it worked out. And I was there with the Yankees for three years, and, uh, and then the Dodgers decided they wanted to make a move in, in their booth. And they invited me out, and I've been here ever since. Well, uh, you just made some news here. I don't know that we knew that the Giants uh, wanted you to come here. Who Do you remember who it was you were going to replace? I don't know who I was going to replace, but I was going to work with John. Um, and I, you know, I had the exact same offer in terms of years and dollars as the Yankees. And uh, had my dad not been in ill health, I was actually thinking about coming here seriously because I always loved the city. Um, and so it came down to my dad and it was, it was really wonderful that he was able to listen to me in his, uh, in his last couple of years. And uh, you, you obviously ended up getting to, to work with Vin. Sometimes when you end up getting to know one of your idols, it ends up being a really bad experience because you see what they are. I take it it wasn't the case with Vin. No, Vin is one of the most extraordinary people I've ever been around. And again, I, this is the guy that I wanted to be like knowing full well I could never replace him just to work in a parallel universe and and I, I was I was I, I played pepper with Babe Ruth every day is how I looked at it you know he's the best who ever did what he's done what any of us have ever done and then to be alongside him for 12 years and you know there's so many memorable experiences I had with Vin and, and it was right here in his final game in uh, what was it, two years ago, three years ago now. Right. Um, and just spending that last year with him before every game uh, at home, and he wasn't traveling at all anymore, just came for that last trip here. Uh, me and Vin and Rick Monday, my partner for 15 years, the three of us would have dinner every night. And I figured out, I had, Mo and I had, over a thousand dinners with Vin before every game, and you know what it's like being in a press room and and, and spending time with your your, your buddies, and, and 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 you talk about everything, and sometimes has nothing to do with baseball, it's just life, and and to have spent that final year with Vin was extraordinary, and then spending uh, the, his very last day here uh, was was something. So yeah, was, again, when I was seven, I wanted to be like him and all these years later I was able to work alongside him and to this day we still talk a lot on the phone. Well that's wonderful and uh, I just before we we leave uh, you know I, I w it would be remiss if I didn't ask about this Dodger team that you've been broadcasting six straight division titles two straight pennants there's always a little schadenfreude here in um, in San Francisco there's a lot of the fans here have rooted it for the outcomes in the World Series that actually happened but, but, but what I 
mean, how hard has it been in Los Angeles to get that close twice uh, and to see this team, especially the first year when uh, they went to Houston and uh, played the Astros and lost a game seven at home and then uh, to get rolled like they did last year uh, in, uh, against the Red Sox. I mean, I, I would imagine that that has just created a lot of, uh, you know, chalkboard scratching angst in L.A. You know, I, I look at it differently and maybe it's a, because of what I do for a living is a little more clinical and a little less cynical. Um, winning the division six years in a row is a big deal. Getting to the World Series two years running is a big deal. You know, what we do for a living, what fans do, what players do, you want to play in games that count in August and September. When you come to the ballpark and there's energy and every game counts, every inning counts, and as the season gets closer and closer to the finish line, every pitch counts. And that's all you can do. And then once you get there, you know, it's the luck of the draw as much as anything else. I think two years ago, legitimate disappointment because they had the Astros on the ropes. Last year, the Red Sox were just the better team. So I I, I marvel at the consistency of this team, uh, the fact that the Dodgers are more than likely going to win the division again this year unless something unforeseen happens, not only testament to their strength, but the relative weakness of the division. Um, they're really good. Um, and again, all you can do is hope to be relevant in September and October and let the chips fall where they may. So I I guess I don't get as crazy about it as, as fans do because some around it so closely. Okay, you don't call into the talk shows then. I don't listen to them. There you go. Well, listen, Charlie, uh, this was a real pleasure. And uh, for being on this podcast, you'll get the same gift certificates that I got when I was on your pregame show, which was Bupkis. Uh, well, I'm hoping for twice as much. <laughs> twice as much. Twice times Bupkis is still Bupkis. Thanks a lot, and you have a great rest of your season, Charlie. Thank, thank you. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Giant Splash. We'll have much more as the month of May and the season continue. Giants Double Play is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is editor-in-chief. If you like this show, please subscribe, tell a friend, or give us a review. You can support Giants Double Play and a lot of great journalism with a subscription to The Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. You can find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe. If you want to find me on Twitter, I am at Hank Shulman, or you can email me at hshulman at sfchronicle.com. Thank you.